Hey church family, if you will, turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John. John chapter 20. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 18. John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. And as you make your way there, I just want to again say thank you for joining with us this morning via this live stream. We uh, hope it's encouraging to you as we come around truth uh, together, uh, whether it's through the truth in which we sing, uh, sing uh, or certainly the truth that's uh, found in God's word this morning. We're grateful that we can still do something. Uh, this is uh, certainly not, uh, not the way any of us want to celebrate uh, the resurrection uh, in this way, but yet we do so uh, as providence has dealt it to us this way, and uh, hopefully in coming days we'll be back together very soon and that that reunion will be sweet, and we look forward to that time. Uh, but in the meantime, we're going to continue to look at the truth of God's Word and ask for the Lord to shape us and to conform us into the image of Christ as we think through these truths. So let me pray for our time together this morning and ask God to give us wisdom and insight. Father, we thank you for your Word. We thank you that it is true. And we ask now, Lord, as we look at John chapter 20, that you would help us to understand uh, the glory of the resurrection and, Father, how that has great implication for our lives. So, Lord, would you open our minds and our hearts, help us to be responsive uh, to the truth this day, that it would change us for your glory and our good, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, has, has your hopes ever been dashed? Have you ever been greatly disappointed, discouraged, I know that all of us go through seasons like that. Maybe many of us, even now, as I say that, that, that kind of pain is fresh on our minds because for many, uh, because of the current situation in the world and throughout our country today, uh, many of the things that we've been planning and hoping for, looking forward to, we just were not able to do. Uh, just recounting yesterday that just over these months, three trips have been canceled. Uh, I know for, for at least me and our family, uh, various things going on. Uh, looking forward, I, I was just saying yesterday uh, to my wife that uh, I, had you told me two months ago that we would not be gathered together on Easter Sunday, I would have just, I, I think I would have not believed you. Uh, and so there's so many things that come on in life that, that disappoint us, that discourage us, that, that just catch us by surprise. Maybe our expectations are not met and therefore we are greatly disappointed. You know, there are disappointments that we regularly face, uh, discouragements, but then there are some things that are very difficult to get over. I want you to put yourselves in the disciples' shoes for a moment. I mean, think about the disciples. They'd followed Jesus for three years, and even though Jesus had taught them very clearly multiple times that he was going to die and on the third day be raised, they were still anticipating something quite different. They thought Jesus was going to be the one to overthrow Rome, maybe. That he was going to be the next great leader that was going to bring um, relief to the oppression that they were experiencing, that there was going to be this new kingdom set up. And they would all have a front row seat to watch it unfold. But that's not how it played out. We know that Jesus was betrayed by one of them. He was arrested. He was crucified. He died. 
But on that Good Friday, this was not what the disciples had anticipated. Good Friday was anything but good for them in their context, in, in their uh, perspective at that moment. We know that it was good for what it ultimately accomplished, the forgiveness of our sins and the reconciliation that we have with God, and that's why we call it Good Friday. But on that particular Friday, it was anything but good for them. So the grief and the despair that the disciples experienced between Friday and Sunday was massive. To say they were disappointed would have been an understatement. All of this from their mind, maybe was it, had it been for nothing. Had they missed something along the way? And I would say they clearly had. Because we know that it wasn't for nothing. We know that there was a greater plan at play. We know that God was up to something great. So with that in mind, I want us to look at John chapter 20 this morning, and I want to read from verse 1 down to verse 18. And we're going to look at the resurrection account this morning, specifically through the, the perspective of a woman named Mary. John chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. This is what we read, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark. And saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, and, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Stooping to look, and stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and saw, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father, and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he has said these things to her. So when you think about the perspective of the disciples and how I said that they were distraught, they were discouraged, they were disappointed, their lives were about to be radically changed. And it all begins here with what Mary experienced as she is the first one there to 
the tomb. This was not Jesus's earthly mother, by the way. This was Mary Magdalene. She was the first to visit his tomb, and her experience there would leave a ripple effect, really, to what continues today. We know when we look at this passage through Mary's experience, and we know also the disciples, if you read later on into chapter 20, you see that they were impacted as well. But that the resurrection of Jesus transforms our outlook and our devotion. It transforms our despair, our disappointments, our discouragements, and it helps us to see what God has done, truly, ultimately resulting in much joy. As we track along with Mary's encounter of the empty tomb, we're going to see how her experience is powerfully shaped by the resurrected Christ. We're going to follow her through this through these first 18 verses of this chapter. And by looking at her experience and looking at how she uh, interacted with Jesus, we're going to see several things as we walk along with her and how the resurrection ultimately transformed her as well as the disciples and as well as the rest of us who follow Jesus. We're going to look at this in, in three sections, if you will, or three observations that we see. And as we do that, we're going to make some application along the way. We're going to see... Uh, First of all, we're going to see Mary and her disturbed condition. Mary's disturbed condition or distraught. In in the first 13 verses, we experience this with her. We know that Mary came to the tomb. According to the other gospel writers, she was not alone, at least uh, at some point along the way. According to Mark's account, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, were with her. According to Luke, so was Joanna and others. And maybe it was at different times and different different, uh, times throughout the night or the morning. But we know that there were others around and at least uh, nearby with Mary. Here we're told that she arrives to the tomb on the first day of the week and John singles her out without mention of the others. Although there's a hint in verse 2 that the others were at least nearby, it says there. uh, uh, Verse 2, so she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. But again, she is the first one there. She's the first one to encounter the empty tomb. And we see this as she arrives and finds the stone had been taken away there in verse 1. She comes to the tomb early. It's still dark. She saw that the stone had been taken away. And so what, she, what does she do? She runs back and tells Peter and John. John is the one whom Jesus loved. He's, he's the writer of this gospel, and he's the one referenced there, even though it's not by name. So Peter and John are the ones Mary goes and tells, and then they run to see for themselves what she had reported. And that account, we know there from verse 3 through verse 10, is there for us as Peter and John make their way to the tomb. They look in. First, John looks in and sees the empty tomb, and then Peter actually goes into the tomb, sees that it's empty, and we're told there that he sees that. He saw it in verse 8 and believed. There's discussion on whether that's faith or believed the resurrection or just believed Mary's account that the tomb was indeed empty uh, because it says in verse 9, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. And so we see that the disciples see for themselves firsthand that the tomb is empty, and then they go back to their house. But then in verse 11, we see Mary did not do that. She remained at the tomb. Verse 11, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. 
She looks into the tomb. And the text tells us next what happens, and it's quite amazing, actually. In verse 12, it says this, And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. In verse 14, not only, is, not only does she encounter the angels, she becomes aware of someone else behind her. It's Jesus. She, does, she doesn't know that initially. She doesn't recognize him. But we get the picture here. Mary has just encountered two angels in an empty tomb, and her demeanor doesn't change. Think about that. How many times before when people encountered angels in the Bible, what happens? They usually fall on their face and are ready to worship because angelic beings are so glorious and frightening. They're fearful. But it's as if Mary's just talking, like, like, it's as if Mary, it's almost comical, as if she's just used to talking to angels. Again, look at verse 12. She saw two angels. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She's not fearful. She doesn't fall down on her face. And she's like, they've taken away my Lord and I don't know where they've laid him. She's conversing with these angels. It's as if she's not even aware that they're angels. She's just encountered these two angels in an empty tomb. She's encountered the resurrected Christ, though she doesn't understand him to be that. She thinks he's simply a gardener there to water the flowers. The reality of all of that has yet to dawn on Mary. She's still distraught. She's still upset because she thinks, very common practice in that day and time, that perhaps maybe grave robbers have come and taken Jesus' body and put it elsewhere. She's still upset because she thinks uh, he's been stolen. His body's been stolen. Not, up at this point, there's, there's no conscious awareness on Mary's part that perhaps Jesus had in fact been raised from the dead. She doesn't believe the resurrection has happened at this point. She still assumes that he's dead and she's looking for his body. I think this is helpful for us to consider because we need to understand that Mary deeply cared for Jesus. She loved him. She cared for him. She was committed to him in some way. We know that in Luke's gospel that, that Jesus had previously cast out seven demons from her and we're told throughout uh, the course of uh, uh, at least church history and, and other glimpses we find in the gospel accounts that certainly Mary was a, was a follower of Jesus in some way. She was committed to him in some way, but she definitely had a deep love for him, a care for him. And yet here she is distraught and confused because she has not truly understood what have taken place. We know that this is the case. Sometimes excessive grief impacts our recalling of certain truths and realities that we've maybe even heard and encountered in the past. Jesus had taught many times, and surely she had heard this, he had taught many times in the past that he must die and on the third day be raised. And here, that's exactly what happened. He died on the third day, the tomb is empty, and what is Mary doing? She is distraught, she is upset, she is weeping thinking that the body of Jesus has been stolen. Not once does, is there any expectation or anticipation that perhaps he has been raised just as he said. Mary was basing her assessment of what she saw merely on her experience and her perspective and not on Jesus' word and promise. Just think about that. When we take our eyes off the truth, off the promises of God, 
anxiety, fear, sorrow, discouragement, despair will fill the void. When we remove our perspective upon what God has clearly told us, and we begin to, to view life and view our experiences merely based upon the immediate perception and feelings around us, then it's no wonder that we find ourselves in a state of sorrow and despair and anxiety and fear and concern. It's a great reminder to us. See, our affection and our devotion to Jesus must be undergirded first and foremost by truth, by the truth of his promises and not based upon our own assessments to our own experiences. If we navigate life and if we view the perspective of life merely based upon what we feel or what we experience or what we think, then friends, we're going to be in for a very difficult journey. See, Mary had taken her eyes off of what Jesus had promised and merely was basing her experience upon what she felt and, and encountered in the moment. You see, she had an affinity for Christ, but she fell short in seeing him for the fullness of who he was and what he had come to accomplish. I think it's a word for all of us because many people have an affinity for Christ. They, they, they have an affinity for Christian things. The fact that you are watching this live stream right now indicates in some way that you have an affinity for, for Christian things. Whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, you at least respect the faith or you wouldn't be watching this. But friends, there's a great difference between someone having an affinity for Christian things than someone who truly follows Jesus based upon his truth and promises. Here's the thing that we all, all need to hear. Let us never confuse affinity for true faith in Jesus. Mary had spent much time with Jesus, and yet she was not seeing the fullness of who he was. She was not getting it, nor were the disciples for that matter at this point. So you see she's in this disturbed condition. She's in a distraught state because she had taken her eyes away from the truth. She's not believing the truth at this point. And therefore, she continues in her sorrow. And that leads us to the second observation that we see, as we, and we can call this a, a loving correction. See that in verses 14 through 16. You know, we, we see there, as she encounters the angels, she, they ask her why she's weeping. She responds to them. And verse 14, having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she didn't know it was Jesus. And Jesus says to her, same question, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And it says, supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, it's almost like she's annoyed right now. Sir, if you've carried him away, just tell me where you've, where you've put his body so I, can, so I can take the body. You know, as we think about Mary's encounter, first with the angels, it's interesting, um, as she encounters the angels, Back in verse 12, I don't want you to see this. She saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. Some scholars, and it's just a kind of a side note, some scholars, old scholars like Richard Sibbs and uh, Gerhardus Voss once, once pointed out that the angels in the tomb may have some indication of what we see back in the Old Testament, where you see uh, here one angel at the head and one angel at the foot where Jesus had laid. It's almost that it reminds us of the two cherubim at the two ends of the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. 
And that mercy seat would have been the place where the high priest would have sprinkled blood to make atonement for the sins of the people. And they would say that it's almost John is highlighting the fact at this moment that a full atonement and satisfaction for sin has been accomplished through the death of Jesus as you see these two angels, one at the head, one at the feet. It's almost a, almost a side statement, but a statement saying atonement has been made. Now the resurrection has happened. But notice as Mary continues and encounters Jesus, notice the compassion and the tenderness with which Jesus asks his question. He's gentle with her. But even in his gentleness, these questions are intended to be corrective. So, woman, who are you seeking? Why are you weeping? She responds to him. For Mary, it's obvious why she's so upset. The body of Jesus, in her mind, was taken. It's gone. But for Jesus and the angels, it's also obvious why her weeping is unnecessary. How could Mary not have seen what has just happened? Two angels and Jesus himself there to testify to his resurrection. And she still doesn't see it. Friends, again, I think this is a good word for each of us. I mean, think again of all that's happening right in front of Mary. The stone had been rolled away, the tomb was empty, and there was Jesus himself alive. And yet Mary grieved, unaware of these realities. I think it's important for us to see a little bit about her blindness here. Mary's blindness was not merely emotional, it was a deeply spiritual blindness. She was truly unable to comprehend Jesus' resurrection at this point. There's care and concern for Jesus, for sure she wouldn't have been there otherwise. But there's not belief in his promise and the reality of his triumph. You see, Mary's greatest obstacle in believing the resurrection was not the lack of evidence. I mean, what more could you have asked for? Her great, I mean, two angels and Jesus himself there to testify that the tomb was empty, that he had risen uh, indeed. You see, her greatest obstacle was not lack of evidence. Her greatest obstacle was spiritual blindness. Jesus had conquered death and Mary was in danger of not seeing. In fact, she hadn't seen it at this moment. Friend, we know that there's much we are sorrowful over in this world, much that we lament. But the reason our lament is grounded in hope is because Jesus lives. Jesus is alive. And in order to understand that, we all need eyes to see it. We, we don't see that on our own. We, we're not capable in and of our own strength of seeing the reality of Jesus's resurrection. We need eyes to see it. We're all blind to these realities left to ourselves. Mary had followed Jesus. She loved him. She was crushed at the reality of his death. She was the last to leave the cross and the first to be at his grave. And she still did not see the fullness of who Jesus was and what he had come to accomplish. It's a reminder to each of us that our greatest need concerning the reality of who Jesus is and what he came to accomplish is not more evidence. Our greatest need is not more evidence. We have all the evidence in the world. Our greatest need is for our blindness to be removed. Our greatest need is for our blindness to be removed. Friends, as you think about that spiritual reality, that should affect a lot of ways we go about our lives in ministry. It should impact how we pray, how we pray for our lost family members and friends, how we go about sharing the gospel, 
how we go about living as those who serve Christ, how we worship. I mean, when we worship the Lord, again, we're all the more humbled when we realize that God, it takes a work of God to remove the blindness. A lot of things that this impacts. For Mary, we do know that things take a radical turn from verse 15 to verse 16. Whatever blindness Mary experienced up until this point is undone with one word. After she responds to Jesus in verse 15, Sir, where are you thinking him to be the gardener? Jesus said to her, Mary. Calls her by name. And it's in that one word, at that one moment, as Jesus calls her by name, that the blindness is removed and she sees Jesus for who he is. She calls out to him, Rabbi, which means teacher. She, she understands this, this is Jesus. He's alive. He died and now he's alive. And it's a great, a great point in the story where it reminds us just of the, of the specific work that Jesus does when he dies and he's raised from the dead. He's, again, not just doing a general work. He's doing a very specific and special work. In John chapter 10, earlier in this, in this book, in John chapter 10, verse 3, Jesus says that the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. This is just a reminder to us that the call of Jesus in the gospel is an effectual call. It's a, it's a special, it's a specific calling. When he calls his sheep by name, the veil is lifted, the blindness is removed, and the light shines into the darkness. The call of Jesus is a profoundly powerful and personal call. And once she hears it, everything changes. Everything changes. She immediately is overwhelmed in joy with the fact that Jesus is alive, standing with her, and she clings to him. In fact, Jesus has to tell her to quit clinging to him in just a moment. She's overwhelmed with joy. Brothers and sisters, isn't that the right response to the resurrected Christ? That we would not be a people caught up with weeping and sorrow and discouragement and despair. But if we're followers of Jesus... If we're following Jesus and we live in light of this truth that Jesus is no longer dead, but that he lives, that he's alive, then friends, that should impact. Yes, we will be sorrowful. Yes, there will be times where we're called to lament as we talked about over the past weeks. But at the very core of our being, there ought to be this fullness of joy and pleasure and happiness and, and, and rejoicing in the fact that we serve a risen Savior. The resurrection informs how we live and how we think and how we feel. So we know that through this loving correction, Jesus calls her by name and she's awakened to the truth of who he is and what he has indeed accomplished. But not only that, we see her joyful confession. We see a joyful confession. In verse 17, it says, Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. See, Mary is overwhelmed, as I said earlier. She's overwhelmed by the presence and reality that Jesus is alive, and she clings to him in some way. I don't exactly know what that looks like, but she's attached to Jesus at this moment. Maybe many think that she's fallen down at his feet and is holding on to his feet. To the point 
where Jesus has to instruct her to stop. He says this, he says, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. She's acting as if Jesus was about to go away again, and he's trying to tell her, he's helping her realize that he's going to be around a little while longer, that she need not cling to him as if he's about to somehow disappear or go away. And as he does that, he then gives her a commission. He gives her a command, instruction. The first commission given by the post-resurrected Christ is given to this woman, Mary. And she is instructed to go and tell the disciples. He says, go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. And we know that it's not Jesus' brothers by family because she immediately goes to the disciples. She knows exactly who Jesus is talking about when he instructs her. And she, she does just that, as we see in verse 18. She goes to them and announces, I have seen the Lord. A couple of things I think we should pause here a few moments to consider about the content of this commission that Jesus gave to Mary. First of all, we see how the resurrection informs our mission. When she goes to the disciples, she proclaims to them, I've seen the Lord. Mary becomes the first to witness for the resurrected Christ. She becomes the first evangelist, if you will. She becomes the first one to testify to the fact that Jesus has been raised from the dead and she goes to the disciples and shares the good news with them. It's always amazing to me. And, you know, you, you see how the disciples respond and how Mary responds. You know, whether they're still confused as to what's going on or whether they believe and they're just processing and they go back, they go back home. They go back to the house of mourning, if you will, to, to analyze. And she's there. She sees all of this and she's sent to share this good news. So she goes and tells. Friends, we know that this was the only the beginning. For after that, we know that Jesus would visit the disciples himself and then he would also send them. You keep reading this passage in the next few verses and you see that's exactly what happens. It says in verse 20, when uh, he showed them his hand and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them, again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. After Jesus visits them, we know that they are sent on mission. For Mary, that was an immediate responsibility to get to word to the disciples. And then as the word goes to the disciples, now all of them are going to be sent with this same good news to share with others. And friends, I would just remind you that that message has yet to fail to spread. It's continued. That same message has continued to be announced year after year, century after century. See, joy in the resurrected Christ compels us to go and proclaim that he lives. Just think about what blessings we enjoy from being united with Christ. We, we, we are now privileged to, to be those who testify of this great work of redemption that he was accomplished. You remember Jesus said part of the message that she was to tell was that Jesus was going to ascend to his father. And this is important because we benefit by his ascension to the father because of his ongoing intercession for us. He prays for us. And we also receive the Holy Spirit. We're going to get all of this information later on, especially when you get into the book of Acts. We receive the Holy Spirit, and we're compelled to continue this great work of proclamation, of telling the world that, in fact, Jesus has risen. And nothing, friends, can stop that message. 
Nothing can stop that message from spreading, not even the current situation we find ourselves in today. We see how God has used even persecution and difficulty and trial to continue to spread this good news to the world. Just this past week, I was in conversation with our friends from Moldova, having to basically cancel our mission trip plans for this year. And in one of the emails back and forth, here's what Felicia wrote me. She's one of the the leaders there and the camp leaders in particular that we're going to be serving at. She, She wrote to me this on Thursday. She said, please pray for the situation with the camps. We are not yet sure if they too will take place because we do not know how much time it will take for all of the quarantine to finish. A lot of Bible study leaders have moved their groups to online platforms and are continuing to teach this way. But we have seen and noticed that people are more open to the gospel now and are ready to listen to the good news. We pray to use this time wisely. Friends, it's just a subtle reminder to me yet again that, that nothing can limit, nothing can stop this good news from spreading. No, no, no circumstance can limit that. And we get the joyful pleasure of, of taking part in this sharing of the good news. The resurrection informs our mission. No matter the obstacles that may come up, there's, there's a way that God's going to use for good to get that message out. God is at work to make known the good news of Jesus Christ no matter what we might encounter in this world. And we have the pleasure of joining him in that great work. The resurrection informs our mission. It sends us out. It, it compels us to go and tell that he is alive and that he has accomplished salvation. Not only that, the resurrection confirms our status. Not only does it inform our mission, it confirms our status. Notice the message Jesus told Mary to share. He didn't say to her, tell them, I'm ascending to my father, period. He says, go tell them, I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. You see, Jesus identifies one of the amazing privileges that we as his followers are able to enjoy because of his death and resurrection. It's the privilege of being adopted as God's sons and daughters. If you were to read Romans 8, Paul writing to the church at Rome later on in verse 15. Paul writes these words in Romans 8 verse 15. He says, For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Think about those words that Paul just wrote, that we are heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. We've been adopted into God's family, and now Jesus as our elder brother is the one that we get to share this this reign with in some mysterious way. And listen, Jesus died on the cross to bear the punishment for our sin and was raised from the dead so that you and I might be adopted into his family and given this glorious position and status as co-heirs, as adopted children of God. He did that freely of his own choosing. He did that as an act of grace extended to you, friend. Maybe you're watching this live stream today as an unbeliever. And friend, my my plea and my prayer, my plea to you and my prayer for you 
is that you as well, that you would be given these eyes to see Jesus as your only hope of rescue. You, You see, we are all sinners, all of us. We are all sinners and we all stand before a holy God guilty. We stand guilty. We stand condemned. But we know according to the scriptures that God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And three days later, later, God raised him from the dead to demonstrate his power and victory over sin and death once and for all. And friend, the promise of the gospel is that if you would put your hope and trust and faith in Jesus and his life, death, and resurrection, your sins would be forgiven and you'd be adopted. You'd be made a co-heir with Christ. This is your hope. And so if you are not following Christ, this is the hope that you have been given. This is the good news that will change everything for you. The resurrection is God's guarantee that our hope is secure. And believer, this is good news for you. Think about the death and resurrection of Jesus. Friends, this is not just good news for the unbeliever, though it certainly is, if they would believe it. It's good news for you, friend. This is the source of your joy. This is the source of your union with Christ. It's good news because though you were once blind, now you see. And not only do you see, you've been adopted. You've been given new family. You've been given the promise of eternal life. You've been made a co-heir with Christ. That's who you are. There's no greater privilege in the world than to be a co-heir with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And he accomplished all of that for you through his death and resurrection. May that inform everything about you. Nothing can give you joy like this. You may be looking in all kinds of places, believer, for, for joy, for contentment, for happiness, for pleasure. There's no greater joy, there's no greater pleasure in the world than to to know that you've been adopted as one of God's children and that you are a co-heir with Christ because of what Jesus has accomplished for you. You know, maybe you're struggling to find true joy. Maybe you're struggling to find true joy today because you've not met the resurrected Lord. Maybe you've, you've not trusted in Christ. Again, we would ask you and plead with you to put your hope in Jesus. Find him as the source of your joy and salvation today. Maybe you're struggling to find true joy because while you've trusted the Lord, you've, not, you've allowed too much of the world to rob you of joy. Maybe you're following Jesus, and yet you find yourself miserable. And that's an oxymoron, right? You, you, you shouldn't live in that. You, you shouldn't live in that way. As a Christian, you, you should be able to rejoice in the goodness of God's grace to you, no matter what you may experience. All of us go through those moments of of discouragement and despair and, and what seems like hopelessness, and yet we have hope. Yet we have joy because of what Christ has accomplished. Friends, we know that the disappointment that the disciples experienced on Friday into Saturday, that disappointment would be gone by Sunday. It would be gone because their master had, in fact, risen. He was raised from the dead. Like the psalmist says in Psalm 30, verse 5, that weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. That's exactly what they experienced. Weeping was, was going on through that weekend, 
It was a dark weekend. It was a difficult weekend. It was a disappointing weekend. Everything that they had dreamed of was shattered, and yet there was a newfound joy when they met the resurrected Christ. See, Mary learned as she encountered the living Christ that the fullness of joy, her weeping immediately goes into joy. Friend, no matter what you may be weeping over, no matter what may have you weeping, rest assured that if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, your hope remains secure in him. We will all weep. We will all be disappointed. We will all be troubled, at times distraught. But may this passage remind us that in Christ, in the fullness of who he is as the resurrected king, there and only there is fullness of joy. Friend, there's an empty tomb in Jerusalem that testifies to that fact. So let's find our hope renewed in him, and let's continue to spend our life following him to his glory and praise. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this great reminder, this truth of the resurrection. We thank you that in Jesus we have hope, that we have confidence, that even in the midst of our sorrow and weeping and disappointments, that the resurrection shines new light into us. Father, as we look even through the lens of Mary, we see how she goes from one end of the spectrum to the other in a moment. And Father, that moment was centered completely upon what you accomplished through Christ and the power that you extend to open the eyes of those who are blind to see it. Father, my prayer even now is, God, that you would open blind eyes. Father, even as those who are watching this live stream right now, Lord, maybe some of them are are living in blindness. They're not able to see the reality and fullness of who Jesus is. Lord, would you remove the blindness? Would you help them to see Jesus for who he truly is, that they might trust him and that they might follow him all their days? Father, for those believers that are tuned in even now, we pray that this would be yet another means of grace to encourage, to strengthen, to carry us on into this world, that we would be reminded of the mission that we've been given, the status of who we are, that we might worship you and delight in you and treasure you for what you've done to, to bring us out of darkness into light, to adopt us as those who were left to ourselves now adopted into your family, a seat at the table. We've been given a new name. We've been given a new status. We've been made co-heirs with Christ. Lord, I pray that that would inform all that we are and all that we do. God, may this Easter Sunday be yet a reminder to that end that you are worthy. You are worthy of glory. You are worthy of all that we can give you because you are God. So, Lord, we thank you this day for this reminder from your word. We ask that you would shape us by it strengthen us in it, and carry us on by your grace, we pray in Jesus' name.